So we're into a series through which we are going to learn from some of the lesser-known biblical leaders of God's chosen people. And I've said that one of those leaders was good, one was bad, and the other was beautiful. Right now, we are talking about the leader who was good, and his name was Hezekiah. He was a very good king over Judah some 2,500 years ago. Now, someone might ask, why would we want to learn from a little-known ancient king of Judah? While I know that some of you will tell me you are totally pumped about it, others may need to hear me say that the truths of the Old Testament are absolutely as important as any of the truths in the New Testament. The apostles explain that the entire Bible is breathed out of the mouth of God and that all of it is useful for teaching, training, and correcting His people. In truth, you and I cannot fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ or any New Testament teaching unless we understand the foundation upon which it was built, that being the Old Testament. Besides, don't you want to know your own history? Maybe you thought the Old Testament was the history of the Jews. But if you're a follower of Christ, the Bible says that you have been grafted into the family tree of Abraham, and so the history of the Jews is your history as well. As it turns out, if you are a believer in Christ, the Messiah, then you are now one of God's chosen people. And so the story of ancient Israel is now your story. The New Testament is clear that regardless of ethnicity, true believers of every culture or color share the same spiritual history and the same future. You may be of Asian or African or Native American descent, while I am mostly English and German, personally, but if you and I both know Jesus, we are now part of the same spiritual family as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are the same spiritual family as King David, Moses, Noah. In fact, their stories are foundational to our belief system. Remember this, God's family was never as much a family of blood as a family of faith. Just ask Ruth of Moab or Rahab of Jericho, both of whom were not Jews by birth, but became Jews by faith. In fact, according to Matthew, both of these non-Jewish women were mothers in the line of Jesus Christ. But more importantly, they were part of God's family by faith. As several prophets made clear, membership in the family of God has always been based on belief, not bloodline, as Paul put it. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And also, for this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. There are whole chapters in the New Testament making this point, which means that the narrative recorded in the Old Testament is our own narrative as believers in the promise, which culminated in Jesus the Messiah in books like Second Kings. We learn about our spiritual ancestors, the good, the bad, <laughs> and the beautiful ones. These were people who made a difference for good or bad, a difference that we can still feel today because spiritually we are their descendants. We have been grafted into the family tree of Israel and now their story 
is our story. Besides all of this, it is simply true that history is our best teacher. For this reason, I believe it is critical that followers of Jesus Christ understand their heritage and their history. We ought to at least have in mind a basic outline of the Old Testament because it is so very foundational to the gospel by which we are saved. That's why last week and a week or two more, we're going to do this little walk through the Old Testament that we have done once in a while throughout my time here as pastor. Please try to say the words as I give the signal. If you're really good, you can try to say the words and do the signals. The more senses you involve, the better you learn things. So here we go. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Tell us about. Pretty good. Little delay, but good. That is the easiest one. (laughs) Chapter 3, the temptation and fall of Adam and Eve. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel, the first murder. Chapter 5, genealogies. It's going to be a little boring. Chapter 6, 7, 8, Noah and the flood. Everybody gets that one. Chapter 9, Noah after the flood. That's a rainbow, by the way. Remember what that's about? Yeah. Nope, not going. Chapter 10, (laughs) chapter 10, again, genealogies. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Chapter 12, the call of Abraham. One day God saw the faith of Abraham, spoke to him. God said, go into a land that I will show you and he, um, excuse me, and you and I, and I will make you a great uh, and mighty nation. I will make your name great and I will bless you to be a blessing to the nations. So Abraham packed his bags and he and his family went up around the fertile crescent And they came up to a town called Haran, which was barren. So Abraham wondered. One of my favorites. You got to get that one. So Abraham wondered, what am I doing here? But it wasn't time for him to get to where God was leading him yet. So God had him wait 30 years until Abraham's father, Terah, died. Finally, they moved into the promised land. But Abraham and his wife, Sarah, had a problem because 30 more years had passed and they still hadn't had any children. And now they were getting very old. Finally, God kept his promise and gave uh, a son to Abram and Sarah, who they named Isaac. Isaac was the chosen son. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Esau was not chosen, but Jacob was chosen by God. Later, Jacob was renamed Israel. Good. So Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, had how many sons? Twelve sons, ten fingers, two earlobes, twelve sons. The second and youngest son's name was Joseph. Joseph seemed to have a special relationship with God and with his father, so the other sons didn't like him very much. His brothers threw him into a pit, sold him into bondage, and sent him down to Egypt, Egypt. right, where he lived for 30 years. Joseph eventually became Pharaoh's powerful right-hand man, and 30 years there, after 30 years, there was a famine in the land, and Joseph's whole family moved down to Egypt uh, for another 30 years where they lived in peace and prosperity. After, the, after that, Pharaoh died, and then Joseph died, so there was a new Pharaoh who didn't like Joseph's family, when, which had become very large by this time, so he put them all into bondage for 400 years. After 400 years, the Egyptians had become really oppressive, and the people began to cry out, saying, 
Oh, that was my son. Well, he's heard it a few times. <laughs> Put them in, in, in bondage till they finally cried out and said, God, get us out of this mess. Ever been there? So God called a man named Moses, told him to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses did what God asked, but Pharaoh said, no go. So God began to show his power, and through Moses, he unleashed how many plagues? Ten plagues on the people of Egypt until finally Pharaoh couldn't take any more. And the last time Moses said, let my people go, Pharaoh said, okay. Next, Moses gathered the people. Yeah, same symbol, but gathered the people and led them through the Red Sea and up to Mount Sinai where God gave them the Ten Commandments. Moses later sent how many spies? Twelve spies who were also family leaders into the land that God had promised to see what enemies they might have to face. This was the same land that God had given to Abraham before his descendants moved down to Egypt to escape the famine. Ten leaders came back and said, no go, but two leaders said, let's go. Unfortunately, the people listened to the ten leaders and as a group they said, no go. So God said, because you have no faith and you've disobeyed me, you are going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until everyone 20 and over dies. So that's what happened. When the time was up, Moses brought them to a place called Mount Nebo. Nebo. You get it, right? You do get it. You guys are quick and everything. Nebo. Okay. Where Moses died and a new leader was selected, we'll call him General Joshua. He just happened to be one of those original 10 leaders who had said, let's go. Joshua led the people through the Jordan River and they cut up some vegetables. No. No, they divided up the promised land between the 12 tribes. After Joshua died, there were seven social, economic, and spiritual ups and downs. Come on, everybody's got to do that. Seven social, economic, and spiritual ups and downs. This happened under the leadership of the judges for a period of 400 years. But after 400 years, the people said, forget the judges. God, give us a king. The first, Saul, uh, first king was Saul, the second king was David, and the third king was Solomon. They all ruled the United Kingdom. After Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. The capital of the northern kingdom was? Tough one, good. Samaria, and the capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. There were how many tribes in the north? Ten tribes in the north, and two tribes in the south. After Solomon, there were 19 consecutive kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, and there were 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Of those kings, there were how many good kings in the north? Zero. And there were how many good kings in the south? Eight. In 722 BC, King Shalmaneser V came down from anyone? Assyria and defeated the northern kingdom Israel. He took the 10 tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've Never heard from them since. Let's say that again. He took the ten tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. More than 100 years later, in 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came down to Judah, conquered them, and took many of the people back to Babylon for 70 years. Seventy years later, Babylon had been conquered by the Persians, and Persian kings sent three leaders back to help reestablish Judah. Their names were Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They brought about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem where they rebuilt the temple that was Zerubbabel, reestablished corporate worship. Okay, this is the temple, corporate worship. Uh, that was um, uh, Ezra and rebuilt the 
wall. That was Nehemiah. Last Old Testament prophet, uh, prophet to speak was anyone? Malachi, and he shared his word from the Lord during the time of Nehemiah after the wall had been rebuilt. After that, there were 400 years of silence from God until John the Baptist burst onto the scene, prophesying about Jesus Christ, saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You just covered the whole Old Testament generally. Give yourselves a hand. All right. Good job. Now, for today's message, uh, we continue in the book of 2 Kings chapter 18, where the Bible says, uh, and this is uh, chapter 18, verse 1 in 2 Kings, using the New American Standard. Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. What kind of leader leaves this kind of legacy? What does it take to become a person who is pleasing in the Lord's sight, pleasing enough to even be highly praised within the perfect eternal Word of God? What does it take to experience God's presence in such a way that you prosper in everything you do? Well, we can see at least four requirements right here in this passage. We talked about the first two last week. Let's briefly review. Verse 4 contains step 1, which is to remove the junk. And I really do think that for a baptized believer, this is probably step 1. I should be clear that I mean to apply these steps to folks who have already been born again by faith in Christ and who have been baptized as a profession of that faith. Essentially, if you haven't given your heart to Jesus and made a public profession of that faith, you'll need to start there. But assuming you've already been saved and baptized, I think the case could be made that the very next thing you should be about is removing the junk. Hezekiah did what no previous king had done and decisively removed all of the things that were coming between the people and God. Other kings before his time had done some good things. Uh, they had removed a few things. They, had, they had, had gotten rid of some of the junk, but they had not completely removed the junk. Their epitaphs, epitaphs read so-and-so, we kind of covered this last week, so-and-so, and this just repeated about all these other kings, uh, the, the good ones. So-and-so was a good king, but he did not remove blank. Over and over in the book of Second Kings. I basically asked last week, what is your blank what have you not removed that God wants removed? What is in your life that is not pleasing to God? That he wants you to get rid of. If you want to experience the presence of God in a way that makes you noticeably prosperous as a person, start by removing the junk. That's step one. Also from last week, verse five tells us about step two in Hezekiah's prosperous process, which is simply this trust in the Lord. Our text says Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, or more specifically, he trusted in Yahweh Elohim of Israel. 
This really is the full name of our God, as we discussed last time. Hezekiah didn't trust in his God that he would cause specific circumstances to come true or that his God would force a particular plan that seemed right to him, but rather he simply trusted in the identity of God as defined by the words Yahweh, Elohim of Israel. Hezekiah didn't trust in a God of his own making or even in a God who he could completely explain. No, he did not trust in his own understanding or his own desires, but he trusted in Yahweh, the God who always was and who is and who always will be. Hezekiah trusted in the one true God, the I am, the father God of Israel, Elohim, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, a father to them. Hezekiah trusted in the God of the Bible. Are you trusting in this God? The God of the Bible? The only real God? Or are you trusting in a God of your own invention who will do and say whatever you want him to do and say? There's a big difference. The key to trusting in the real God is actually getting to know him because God is love and God cares and he has good plans for you. And yet, he is only ever who he is. Never whoever you want him to be. When you can't understand what is going on in your life, that's when you find out if you're trusting in God as God or trusting in your wishes to come true. Real trust endures all circumstances, even death. As Job said, yet though he slay me, I will trust in him. That's the kind of trust the Bible says Hezekiah placed it in God. He trusted in who God is, not in getting what he wanted from him. And that completes our review of last week. Today, we'll spend the rest of our time on step three and four in Hezekiah's prosperous process. So step three is this. Stay clingy close to the Lord. The first part of verse six tells us, for he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. Now, let's look at this important word translated in our text as clung, which of course means to cling the original Hebrew word is, and I don't know if this is pronounced right, to be honest. It's, from what I found, this is how you would pronounce it. But and you never know on pronunciations, by the way, of other languages. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it, different seminary professors teach different things, and different books say different things. So just, just for the record. Um, so I'm going to say a dawback. Dawback. Cleave, cling, stick to, stick with. Follow closely, catch, keep close to, join to, overtake. In other words, our translation is very accurate when it says Hezekiah clung to Yahweh, his God. This means that he literally joined himself together with God. He stuck with God constantly. He stayed closely connected to God. What does this say about Hezekiah? One thing it says is that he enjoyed a personal relationship with the Lord. A personal relationship with the Lord, an intimate one in which it would be said that he actually knew God, not simply that he knew about God. Now, you might be surprised to hear that this type of idea is um, something certain Christian thinkers have started to question. Some now seem to cringe at the idea of a personal relationship with God. I'm not sure if it comes from a lack of experience with God 
or if it comes from reading too many books. But believe it or not, some are putting this type of language in the camp of mysticism, which they take the liberty of defining. And see, this is the kind of ridiculous nonsense that sometimes happens in academia. But it also can spill out into the preaching, particularly of various internet personalities who seek to create a following by chasing down various windmills. So let me just tell you that the idea of a personal relationship with God comes not from some ancient mystical heresy, but rather comes directly from the Bible. Further, some might be surprised to see that the idea of a personal relationship with God is found so clearly in the Old Testament, which means it was possible before Jesus ever came and died on the cross. As we've said before, what Christ did on the cross stretched both forward and backward into history. But before I go too far down that path, let's simply recognize from our text that by faith, even before Christ came, Hezekiah walked closely with Yahweh God. This is really quite astounding when you understand the nature of our holy God. And right now, please hear this and get this. If it could be true of Hezekiah in the time before the Holy Spirit even been sent to the live in the lives and the hearts of people, then how much more can it be true of us who have the Spirit indwelling us by grace through faith in Christ? How much more are we able to cling to the Lord? Oh, that we would do so. But then maybe someone here or someone listening is not convinced this word in our narrative speaks of a close, personal relationship with God. Let me help you see this wonderful truth. A good question to ask would be this. Where else is this verb used in the Bible? And this is why you pay me to find out uh, and tell you. So I'll tell you this word is used in Genesis chapter 2, later to be quoted by Jesus. This is the same word God used to say that a man would leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Same word. Going so far as to say that the two would be joined together into one flesh. This is the same word in the Hebrew, dawback, to cleave. In other words, the biblical writers use the same word to talk about the one flesh relationship of a husband and wife as they used to describe Hezekiah's relationship with Yahweh God. When I say that staying clingy close to the Lord is one of the steps that made Hezekiah so prosperous in life, I am talking about clinging to the Lord to the degree that I am clinging to my wife, and particularly in these latter days, now that my children are gone, I must confess that I'm just a big baby (laughs) these days when it comes to being near my wife. I don't want to be away from her at all. I don't want to go on a week-long hunting trip anymore. I'm sorry, guys. You're going to take away my manly card or whatever. I just, I don't, I mean, maybe one night, okay, I guess. I just want to be with her. Sometimes I wish she could come sit in my office while I work. Just kind of just, just watch me, just be there. You know. <laughs> We have a wonderful marriage after many years of effort, and we love each other very much. After 32 years of a healthy, romantic marriage, and all that comes with that physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, we're pretty much joined at the hip. In fact, the Bible says we are one flesh. And folks, this is the kind of relationship Hezekiah had with Yahweh. He clung to his God. He did not want to be away from him, not even for a moment. He walked 
with Yahweh Elohim of Israel as if he were a close companion. That is exactly what this means. And notice the second part of the sentence in our text. We are told that Hezekiah did not depart from following the Lord. Look at it together once more. For he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him. See, the second part of the sentence informs the first part. In order for Hezekiah to cling to the Lord, he had to follow him. Oh, it's so very important to note that God was not following Hezekiah. But rather, Hezekiah was following God. And friends, that's the only way it works. If Hezekiah wanted to stay close, to cling, to not depart from his Lord, he would need to go wherever the Lord went. Now, in one sense, we know that God never leaves us, and that is a promise for those who have trusted in Christ. But I can tell you from experience that if you want to really stay tight with the Lord in the way it is meant in this text, like to the point where it would be said of you that you clung to your God, then you're going to need to go with Him somewhere. Do you get that? Because you see, God is always going. Ours is a missional God. So much more than any of us understand. If you're following Him, you will be going somewhere, even if it's just across the street. The Lord is always going, and He's always telling us to go. I wonder if that'd be a good name for a church. If you want to stay close and cling to the Lord, you're going to need to go where He goes. Now, I don't mean you will always need to be moving from one town to the next. Not all of you anyway. I think the Church of Jesus Christ should have more of that. But you'll not be sitting in a chair all day. It definitely means that. You'll need to do whatever He wants you to do. You'll need to love who He wants you to love and help who He wants you to help if you want to cling to the Lord. I seem to remember something about a lost sheep. One out of 99, one out of 100. I love that old Chris Tomlin song that says, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. Who you love, I'll love. How you serve, I'll serve. If this life I lose, I will follow you. To stay close to God, we have to follow Him. Never, ever expect God to follow you wherever you want to go or don't want to go. That's not how this works. We see this principle throughout the Bible. For instance, James writes, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. See, as believers, we have to move toward God if we want to stay close to God. There's very little about Christianity that is completely passive, by the way. Hezekiah clung to the Lord in an active kind of way because he did not depart from following him. And this is one of the reasons for his God-given prosperity in life. By the way, for a description of what I mean and don't mean by prosperity, you'll have to listen to last week's sermon because I'm not going to equivocate on that any further today. Now, I want to say a little bit more about how we cling to the Lord. How do you and I really stay close to God. We've already touched on something very important to know if we are going to pull this off, and that is that we must realize it is up to us. At least to some degree. 
This is partially up to you. The Bible does not say that God clung to Hezekiah. It says Hezekiah clung to God. In other words, this is not automatic. And you can't wait around for God to make it happen. Decisions will be made on your part. Spiritual disciplines will be followed or not followed. Effort will be put into it if you're going to cling to the Lord. What kind of effort? Oh, it's nothing new. Prayer, Bible study, church attendance, things like that. And everybody says, ho-hum. But if you don't do these things in substantial quantity and with a reasonable degree of quality, you simply will not be found clinging to the Lord. But why? Why those things? Why is it important to do those things? Why is that necessary for clinging to the Lord? Let me explain. How do you stay close to your spouse? Through communication, mostly. And how do you communicate with God? By prayer and through reading His Word, the Bible. That's how we communicate back and forth with God. We can also have fellowship with God to some extent by hanging out with His people. Those who have Him in them. And I could outline other specific ways for you to work on your relationship with God. But the point is, you do have to work on it. Like I told some newlyweds this morning, you have to work on these things. If you don't put any effort into your marriage, I promise you will not continue to cling to each other in any way. The same is true when it comes to relationship with God. If you want the prosperous, blessed life God gives to folks like Hezekiah, you've got to do what Hezekiah did. And one of the things he did is that he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. His relationship with the Lord was close and it was consistent. Listen, I believe many people in this room need to hear this truth in a fresh way today. You are not clinging to God. Are you? God is still saying, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Remember, remember, Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to take you under my wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. Are you more like Jerusalem or are you willing to come under his wings as he calls? Jesus also said, I stand at the door of your heart, knocking, wanting to come in and have sweet fellowship with you. But so many believers mostly keep that door closed. In our defense, sometimes we simply forget the Lord is there, waiting. Don't we? I mean, we just get distracted. Regardless of the reason, I'm afraid that perhaps even most professing Christians today do not cling to the Lord. Not really. All too often, we've departed from following Him in any kind of personal way. Today, if that's you, I would call you to return to the Lord even as a part of also returning to a blessed and prosperous life with God. Now, as indicated, I do believe there is an order to these four requirements as if they were steps. This really lays out as a fairly natural process toward learning to follow Jesus in a prosperous way. Basically, we're talking about post-conversion discipleship. And I do believe step one is removing the junk. They overlap, but you understand. Removing the junk. After that, you'll need to learn a new level of trusting in the Lord through the challenges of life. Next, you'll be learning how to stay close to the Lord through spiritual disciplines and by uh, staying on mission with Him. 
And last but not least, you'll need to actually keep the commandments. In the second half of verse 6, our text says, Hezekiah kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. But wait, isn't that just an Old Testament thing? Short answer, no, that is not just an Old Testament thing. A slightly longer answer is that there are some rules and regulations in the Old Testament that had to do with the governing of Israel and or the how-to of the sacrificial worship system, which have now been fulfilled in Christ, being therefore obsolete in terms of literal practice. However, the moral law, such as the Ten Commandments and other similar commandments, along with the commandments of Christ, are universally expected of anyone claiming to follow Him. This will never change because the commandments of God are based on the character of God, which does not change. And what did Jesus teach about the commandments? Did Jesus teach us that we could ignore the commandments of God recorded in the Old Testament? On the contrary, revealed the deeper meaning behind several of them and explained that even the most legalistic teachers of law were not doing as much as they should to keep those commandments. For instance... Jesus pointed out that the commandment against murder also expects that you would not hate another person since God considers hatred to be murder of the heart. You're not doing enough to keep the commandments, says Jesus, if you only refrain from adultery. Really, you should not even look with desire at someone other than your spouse. Not only did Jesus teach us to obey the letter of Old Testament commandments, but he taught us to take them beyond face value. Further, these commandments are precisely the ones we are commissioned to teach those who become disciples of Jesus. Remember, the Great Commission has three directives. Make disciples, baptize them, and the one we always forget. Teach them to obey my commands. The commands of Christ. He's the one that said it. Well, what are the commands of Christ? For the most part... They are simply the commands of the Old Testament, further explained. Every commandment that Jesus ever made found its basis in the law of Moses, which he constantly drew from in all of his teaching. Let me say that again. The commandments of Christ are the commandments God gave to Moses. As they are recorded in the Old Testament portion of our Bibles, Jesus simply further explained God's intent and made it clear that salvation comes by grace through faith in the Savior also clarifying that full obedience to such commandments is only possible after salvation. Jesus even said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I could have just led with that, couldn't I? I just, just, let's just do that. Forget all that explanation I just went through. Boom. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Just a little bit inconvenient for some of um, some theology that sometimes we all get in there where we're like, well, we're saved, so. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Good one to remember. Now, when it comes to keeping the commandments, there's something different in these New Testament times over the Old Testament period when Hezekiah was faithfully obeying God's commands, what is different is that now, because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the law of God is written upon our hearts. That's what the New Testament, that's, that's the New Testament, it's also known the, as the New Covenant, is all about. The prophets foretold a time when the Messiah would come and promised that at that time, obedience to the law of God would become an outward sign of something that had happened already on the inside. 
See, one of the things that Jesus did after his resurrection upon his ascension is that he sent the Holy Spirit to live in the hearts of all who believe in his name. It seems obvious that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit would make all the difference when it comes to obeying the commandments of God. Because of his presence, we do not obey on our own strength or out of some legalistic effort to earn salvation, which is impossible, but rather we obey because we want to obey. We are being transformed, changed from the inside out. We now keep the commandments in the spiritual power of God that he's given us through the forgiveness and freedom that Jesus brings into the hearts of all who accept his gift. So in short, if Hezekiah could be known for his obedience to the commandments of God, then for us, it should be a piece of cake. And yet, as we all know, it is still not, it's not easy. That's all the more reason to respect Hezekiah, who did not enjoy the benefits of the new covenant that we have in Christ. It's all the more reason to believe that we can obey the commandments, if not perfectly, at least well enough to be thought of as someone who keeps the commandments of God, just like Hezekiah. Would that be written in your epitaph? See, folks, I believe one of our biggest problems in Christianity today is a fatalistic attitude towards sin. Oh, I sin every day, man. Really? I sin like every five minutes, someone says. Really? Listen, in Christ, your sins are, are forgiven and paid for, past, present, and future, but I can assure you that you're not experiencing the prosperous life God wants for you if you're disobeying His commandments every five minutes or every day. Well, nobody's perfect, Pastor. That's true. But like Hezekiah, you could be known as a person who keeps the commandments of God. Or you could be known as another so-called Christian who looks more worldly than godly. Regardless of how you're known, though, I promise you this, disobedience to the commandments of God will not give you the life you want. And it's all easy-peasy if I keep it general, isn't it? Yeah, let's follow the commandments. Sure, absolutely. I'm down for that. So, how about the commandment to tie the tenth of your income? Whoops. Oh, that's just in the Old Testament. See what we do? And besides, it's not just in the Old Testament. Jesus affirmed that we should not neglect the tithe. Oh, maybe he didn't really mean it. He said it. Additionally, this was a commandment and a principle before the law of Moses was even received. The tithe goes all the way back to Abraham, and it's supposed to be almost an automatic response to who God is. It's just kind of like, oh, God is here. I should give that much. It's just that, That's the way it's laid out and when it's originally put there. Regardless, it's a commandment from God, and if half of those who claim Christ obeyed it, we could change the world. How about the commandment from Christ mentioned earlier to go out and make disciples? Made any disciples lately? Well, before you're too hard on yourself, your family counts. There's one thing. Um, your church is making disciples. And if you're part of what we're doing, then you're part of making disciples. But still, I think many of us probably would need to do more individually to really obey the spirit of Christ's command, don't you? Oh, I keep the commandments, Pastor. Are you sure? I mean, maybe this warrants a little bit more self-inventory. 
If you want to experience the prosperous process that we see in the life of Hezekiah, you can't stop short in any of these four steps. Why? He didn't. According to the Bible, God's Word. Do you keep the commandments of God? If not, repentance and a change of behavior are in order. And just by the way, I do find myself needing to repent often. It's a big part of walking by faith with Christ. Let's look at the last line of our text one more time. It says, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. The word and here is a connecting word, obviously. Some translations even use the word so or therefore. This is a conclusive sentence, and the conclusion is drawn from the previous statements where we are told that Hezekiah removed the junk, both trusting in and staying clinging close to the Lord, and also that he kept the commandments. The text is absolutely making this connection, that the result of living according to these principles was that the Lord was with Hezekiah and the Lord prospered him. I'll remind you once more that God's definition of prosperity is sometimes different than ours. But what we're really talking about is the life you've always wanted, whether you really knew what you wanted or not. As I defined it in our Sermon on the Mount series, to be blessed or to prosper in God's kind of way is to have what you would really want if you really knew what you wanted. If you do things God's way, you will be blessed by God. God's way is always best. That's enough for today. Next week, we'll take a look at how this good king handled trouble, serious trouble, the kind we will all face sooner or later. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you're good that you're just, that you bless righteousness, that you grant righteousness, that you give us the ability to live out the reality of what you've done in our hearts. God, forgive us when we squander the miraculous, wonder-working power of the blood of Jesus and settle for worldly ways. Oh, Lord, if we could just do these four things, wow, 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 what amazing lives we would be living, how fulfilling, fulfilling it would be. We just, uh, all we can do is just cry out for help. Another day, another, another church service, another moment to say, I'm, I'm, I need you, God, and I commit that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick it up from here, leaving the past behind, confessing any sin that needs to be confessed, but ultimately leaving it behind and walking with you into the future, into an abundant life with Jesus, even knowing there are even greater rewards to come. Lord, thank you so much for being true, for being real, for being more than a concept or an idea, but something that matters for our lives. And um, just turn us, 
There's this crazy balance in our lives of understanding we can't do anything on our own, that you have to do it in us, that we're desperate for you, that we're sort of dirty, no good sinners in some ways, and we have these bodies of flesh we carry around, but yet also knowing that we are called to take these steps. Without your help, we couldn't, but with your help, we can. I pray that we would. I I pray today that not a single person would leave this building today without having um, turned to some degree. There's, There's something that we need to change. Let us not allow your word to return void and we promise that it won't but even in each in the individual life I pray today that there'll be something maybe major things maybe small things there'll be something in, in terms of um, just from today um, obeying your commands maybe there's a command we need to recommit trusting you all the things that you've spoken to our hearts I pray you would just bring it to fruition that we would apply your word in Jesus name Amen Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons check out our website www gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.